0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Last week, we began a new series of messages on Come On Home. And it's actually connected to our theme this year that it's time, especially it's time to understand the salvation that God has given us. And this series of messages takes several aspects of God's plan of salvation and shows us how that God is interested in each of us having a personal relationship with him. What he's done to welcome us into his family, what he's done to reconcile with us and, and receive us and accept us. And see, the thing is is that all of us struggle with a very serious problem. And this very serious problem in our relationship with God is that we're defiled, we're dirty, we're cut off from God because of our our sin. Because we've broken God's laws, because we've trampled on his love, because we have hurt ourselves, hurt other people, done things to offend God and others. We've not lived up to the potential that God has given us and how we should honor him with our lives. And because we've done all that, we've failed and we've fallen short and and we feel defiled and and we're cut off from God and we don't have a relationship with him. Show the next slide, Frank. Uh, Actually, the the slide after, sorry. This is a picture of Queen Elizabeth handing, a very young Queen Elizabeth, by the way, 1966, handing the, the trophy for winning the World Cup to England's midfielder, defensive men, a guy by the name of Bobby Moore, one of the greatest soccer players that ever lived. Pele, the, the great, Brit- the great uh, Brazilian soccer player, said he was the hardest defender to ever try to sco- score a goal against. And Bobby Moore was the captain of the English football team, the English soccer team, and they won the World Cup that year. In ceremony there at Wembley Stadium, Queen Elizabeth handed the trophy to the captain of the team. And Bobby Moore, as he was called up to go into the the, the royal box and receive the, the trophy from the queen, he noticed that she was wearing white gloves. And his hands were covered with dirt because they just played soccer and he'd fallen on the field. And as he was going up to the box, he kept wiping his hands, and you can see it on his shorts there. He's just wiping his hands, trying to get all the dirt off. He's going up, and he's, he's rubbing against the velvet, you know, bunting that's there on the royal box, and he's kind of trying to, you know, just do everything to get the dirt off his hands because he said, I was going to shake hands with the queen. And his hands look relatively clean there. And in a sense, that's a, a picture of how you and I are by nature, by birth, and and by our own choices, how we stand before Almighty Holy God. We are dirty, and we desperately need some way to get clean if we're going to be welcomed into His presence and be able to have fellowship and a relationship with Him. There's a passage of scripture that talks about how we can experience becoming forgiven, how we can become clean and be reconciled to God. And I want us to turn to the gospel, excuse me, the letter of John, 1 John chapter 1. And I want to look at a very familiar passage of scripture and talk about what it means to be forever forgiven. We've talked about the forever family and how we can become forever friends by being reconciled to God. Well, what do we do? I mean, what are the nuts and bolts of us getting rid of this stain and defilement and dirt that we have because we're all sinners? The president called some people human scum. Another politician who ran for the White House called a bunch of people deplorables, And it's easy that we go out and label and name people as being disgusting or unworthy of our love and acceptance. But the truth is, I am deplorable in God's sight. And the truth is, I am scum in God's sight because I'm a sinner. And I've broken His laws. I've offended Him. I've hurt myself. I've hurt other people. I've trampled on His love. I've broken His law. And I am a scum. I am deplorable because I'm a sinner. How does God take sinners, deplorables, scum, and transform them? How does he take them and clean them up? How does he make them holy in his sight? How does he welcome and include them even though they've done all these things to hurt him and offend him and alienate themselves from him? What does God do? Well, what God does is he provides his forgiveness and cleansing through confession of our sins because of what Jesus Christ did for us the nature of human nature is to try to hide our sin to try to manage our sin to somehow say that I can cope with it and deal with it and God should just accept me but the truth is God says no I want you to be honest about your sin because I'm the only one who can clean you up I'm the only one who can reconcile you to me. That's what God says to you and to me as well. So here in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is on page 1021 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from church. <clears throat> And we read in verse five these words. John is writing this letter to these early Christians. He's been thinking about the life of Christ for about 60 years. John's about 90 years old or so when he writes this letter. And he says, this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That verse, verse 5, summarizes the problem that we have. God is holy. God is loving. God is good. God is righteous. God is light. That's the picture of what God is light. And he says, in him, there is no darkness at all. But what you're going to notice in this passage is that he's not in the dark, but I am. He's not in the dark, but all people are. And so look what he says. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And then notice verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world this is god's word now notice what he's saying in this passage are several very important things i want to call to your attention here Verse 9 is kind of the key to it all. If we're going to have a relationship with God, if we who live in darkness, if we who are darkened by our sin, defiled by our sin, if we somehow are going to be able to be reconciled to God and accepted into His presence, if we're going to step out of that darkness into His holy light, then the only way that that's going to happen is if we confess our sins. That's the only way that we can experience fellowship with God that it talks about in verse 5 and 6. We have to be willing to confess our sins. And so what we're going to do is just explore what does this idea of confession really mean? Because, I mean, for many of us, when we first became Christians, one of the very first Bible verses that we learned or memorized was 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise. It gives us great hope that no matter how badly I have failed and sinned against God, he wants to wash that sin away and welcome me into his presence. What a great promise it is. But what does it really mean? Let's unpack this and and unfold it for us right now. So what is confession? That's the first question that we need to answer. John starts off this first paragraph starting in verse 6. He begins to show you what confession is not. And what he does, I want you to notice verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Notice how all three of these verses in English start with the little phrase, if we say, if we say. And the idea is, if I make this claim, if I claim this about myself. And and all three verses start the exact same way in English and in the original language. And so John is saying... I can imagine somebody reading this letter and making some sort of claim as we talk about sin and fellowship with God and and human failure and God's holiness. As we talk about these things, I can imagine three people denying that they need to confess their sin and denying that they're not right with God. The first thing that they simply say is that sin doesn't matter. That's what verse 6 is talking about. Sin doesn't matter. And so they say, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's an individual, a man or woman, boy or girl, who's just simply saying, you know, God is holy, right, and good, but I, I have fellowship with God, and it doesn't matter that I sin. John says you can see plainly the people around them, the rest of their family, their friends and neighbors, the, fellows at, the folks at church, they see that this guy is a sinner, but he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I have a relationship with God. God is so good, so kind, so loving. He just ignores my sin. My sin doesn't matter, but sin does matter. Sin really does matter. I mean, think about that time you got a splinter in your finger and you didn't realize it at first you've been out working in the yard that day and the next day you wake up you thought man my fingers really sore what's wrong and you look there and you notice that there's a red spot and you notice as you look a little deeper maybe squeeze a little bit there's a little tiny just a little tiny splinter in there and you work it you finally get it out and maybe put some uh, antibiotic on it you wrap it in a band-aid and it gets all better but if you let that be it'll create an infection it's just a little tiny sliver of wood A little tiny end of a thorn, it's just there, it's so small, it's insignificant. It's not insignificant. It could lead to blood poisoning. It could lead to something far worse. You have to deal with it. You and I say our sin doesn't matter because I can just have fellowship with God. He's a great big Santa Claus, a great big happy grandfather that just dotes on his children and just ignores our sin because he's so kind and loving. God is kind and God is loving but he's not Santa Claus. And he's better than your grandfather. He's the holy, righteous, creator God who wants to have a personal relationship with you. So much so, he's willing to deal with the sin that you and I have that has to be gotten rid of. So you can't say it doesn't matter. In fact, he builds on this in verse 7 when he simply says this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So instead of denying that sin matters, instead of saying it doesn't matter and I can just go ahead and sin and God just ignores it, no, he doesn't ignore it and I must not ignore it and you must not ignore it. Instead, let Jesus cleanse that sin. Let him wash it away. Let him clean you up. Come to him, and he'll show us how to do that in just a moment. And then we can live in the light with God and deal with that sin. Another claim that someone will make is in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If I go out and I say, "I, I haven't done it. I haven't done anything that's sinful. In fact, what's remarkable in our culture, I imagine this is true in Quebec, it's true certainly here in our area and in in the United States, is that, you know, people say, you know, what's this business about feeling guilty? I don't feel guilty. I, I, I haven't sinned. But then when you probe a little bit, you realize they'll say, well, yeah, I am embarrassed. I am ashamed. I don't want anybody to know I did that. I want to hide this. And then you begin probing, begin to surface, and you realize they do have a sense of sinfulness. They do have a sense of shame. They do have a sense of brokenness. Those things are really there. But they might say, I haven't sinned. I can't think of any sin. I mean, there have been famous people who said, I haven't done anything I need to confess. I haven't sinned. And that's actually very ridiculous. It shows that someone is not very well self, very self-aware and understanding of who they are and what they've done. The truth is, is that all of us have sinned. And if you and I say, I haven't done it. You know, earlier they said, it doesn't matter. If I say sin doesn't, you know, I haven't sinned. That's ridiculous too. Uh, the truth is not in us. And when he says that the truth is not in us, he's literally talking about the idea that, that, that you're not even a Christian. If you go around saying, I haven't sinned then you're, you're saying, I, I, actually, I'm not a believer. I'm, I'm not a child of God because a child of God, a Christian, has to deal with the problem of sin. I mean, that's the obstacle that keeps us from having that relationship with God. And we need to be honest about our sin and acknowledge it to God so that he can forgive it, so that that blood of Jesus, his death on the cross for us, can be applied to us so that we can be cleansed and welcomed into God's family, and we can become his friend and become members of his family. So we've got to be honest about our sin instead of denying it, denying that we've ever done it. And the promise in verse 9 is that if we confess it, the word confess is the idea of just being honest and acknowledging the sin. It's not so much, I hear people say this, I've said it before, I've preached it this way. You know, it's just agreeing with God. It's a little bigger and more nuanced than that. It's the idea of just being honest. This is what I've done. I am wrong. I did violate God's law. I have trampled on your love and rejected his love. I have done this. I have hurt myself. I have hurt other people. And I just need to be honest with it. I need to acknowledge it. The thing that's interesting is that it doesn't just say confess it to God. It's just we need to be honest in admitting it. Yes, to God, but maybe to others as well. The people we've offended the people who are closest to this so that we can ask them for help to change. We can't just manage our sin. We can't keep denying that we have a problem, that we have sin in our lives. We need to be open and transparent about it and confess it and acknowledge it. And the promise is is that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're gonna come back to that in just a few moments. But there's something else someone could say that d- deny that they have a problem with sin. And you know, the first was that they could say it doesn't matter. Second, they could say I haven't done it. Third, they could say I'm not a sinner. I, I don't even have a nature of sin. It's not part of my life at all. It's not part of my past. It's not part of my nature. I'm a good person. I'm just, I'm just a nice guy. And I don't have any problem with sin. There's no tendency to do the wrong thing. Oh, I make mistakes occasionally. But I'm not a sinner by nature. That's what he says. If we say we have not sinned, we are making God a liar. When you accuse God of lying, you're saying he does something like the devil does because the devil's the father of lies. John 8.44 says that. Jesus told us that. Lying is what the devil does. That's one of his big tools, his big weapons to try to deceive us and lead us astray, to disobey and rebel against God. And so when you and I say that I haven't sinned or I don't have a sin nature, then I'm telling, I'm saying, I'm declaring, I think God is a liar because God says I am a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the, of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Your iniquities are separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he cannot see you or hear you. So when I say I'm not a sinner or that I haven't sinned or I don't have a sinful nature, that I'm not lost and broken or defiled by my sin, when I say that, when I claim that, when I think that, when I live that, I'm saying, God, you're just a big, fat liar. And whenever you and I accuse God of doing something that Satan does, that's called blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And so when you and I do that, We're committing, not worship, we're not justifying ourselves. We're actually blaspheming God, calling him a liar. And the truth is, is that his word, his truth is not in us. We're not really the children of God. We really don't belong in his family because we're trying to somehow know God and walk with him and at the same time trying to hold on to our sin and justify it and just manage it on our own instead of surrendering to him and allowing him to come and get rid of that sin once and for all and deal with it. So I hope you understand, and I hope you see this, that even though this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, it's reminding us of something very profound. Confession is openly acknowledging the sin that we have committed, our guilt, our shame, and defilement before God. We are in debt to God. We are diseased before God because of our sin. And we just are honest in admitting that. That's confession. Confession is not denying it. Confession is not hiding it. Confession is not managing sin. It's saying, God, there's nothing I can do to get rid of my sin. There's nothing I can do to heal me of my sinful tendencies. There's nothing I can do to repair and mend and rebuild my broken life that's been damaged by sin. Only you can. And so I'm admitting it to you. I'm being honest and I'm stepping out of the darkness and I'm stepping into your light here I am warts and all I can't hide it anymore. I'm a sinner and if I'm going to become your child and walk with you I need you to cleanse me of my sin so I confess my sin to you I openly acknowledge it now what happens when we do that What what is the result of confessing? You know, we joked earlier when Amy was admitting that uh, she bought all those apple dumplings. I don't know what she say, three dumplings or three cases. I forgot what she was saying. But she bought all those apple dumplings, okay? And she confessed that. And I thought it was just really humorous, kind of a a holy humorous irony that of all Sundays that she's up in front confessing her apple dumpling binge, okay? All right, she's admitting that, buying binge on that. And I've just embellished it, I realized, so now I need to confess that too, all right. We say that confession is good for the soul but bad for the reputation. And in some ways it is. But I'll take a damaged reputation if I can have a holy relationship with God. I'll look bad in the eyes of other people. I'll be embarrassed when I stand before God knowing that He will pour out and lavish upon me His love, forgiveness, and acceptance. Go back to verse 9. In verse 9, that verse that we've read and studied and memorized, many of us have done, notice what it says, if we confess our sins. And by the way, just don't minimize that word if. It's the idea of you might do it And John is writing it in such a way that it's likely that his readers will do it, but it's not a definite. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. He hopes you will. And so it's a choice. You can't say since we confess our sins. You can't say that. It's not the type of if that it is here, the conditional sentence. It's if, maybe you will, maybe you won't. What will you do? It's a choice that every one of us is is to make. How will you handle the sin that all of us have, that I have, that you have? How will you handle it? It's it's part of human nature. How will you deal with it? How will you cope with it? What will you do with it? He says in verse 9, if we confess, if we're honest in admitting our sins to God and to others, if we admit our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You could camp out on every one of the words in that verse and you would have one of the richest, most meaningful, devotional times you've ever had in your life when you stop and reflect on what every one of those words mean. But he says that he is faithful. You can count on God to do this. He is faithful by nature. He is always true to his promise. There is no sin so bad that God will not forget. You don't cross the line, you've, you've, I'm sorry, you've, you've, you've crossed the threshold and I can't forgive that. You've, you've hit your limit. There's no number of sins that you confess. I'm sorry you've, hit, you know, sorry you've used up all your minutes this month confessing your sin. You're going to have to hold on to that one for a couple, couple weeks until I get around to it. It's never a situation like that. The death of Christ on the cross for us provides cleansing and forgiveness for all sins. That's what he's saying in verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All of it. Every one of them. Every place that they happened, every time, every situation. Whatever excuses that we give for those sins, however much we minimize them, Or how broken we are over them. God forgives them. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to keep that promise. You can count on him to do that. Well, he might forgive Pastor Scott, but he won't forgive me. Uh, Sometimes I think it's the other way around. He'll forgive the people. I'm not sure he'll forgive the pastor because that's really serious when he sins. The truth is it's really serious when we all sin. But he forgives all that. He's willing to forgive and cleanse all that because he is faithful. Not because you're faithful. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've earned it. Not because you have done something to somehow merit it. Oh, I feel bad. I have some pity on you. I'll forgive you. No, it's because he's faithful. That's why he forgives sin. And not only that, it says that he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the right thing for God to do. He's completely justified to do this. Some of us struggle with this. I've thought about this different times when I've really blown my stack and yelled in in anger or when I've done something that was just wrong, I feel so disgusting and dirty about it or some other thing like that. When I've sinned, when I've really blown it, I've, I've thought, God, I tell you that I'm sorry and I ask for your forgiveness and I admit it and I think, I don't deserve this. This seems too easy, it doesn't seem fair. How can this be right? I'm getting off the hook too quickly. It doesn't seem fair. But it is fair. It's just. It's right. Again, because we go back to what Christ did when He was on the cross. When Christ was dying on the cross, all the punishment that I deserved, all the justice that I deserved, God's holy righteous anger punishing sin. My sin was placed upon Christ and Christ was innocent. Christ was pure. Christ was holy. And yet he willingly exchanged his holiness and purity for my sinfulness and wretchedness. He made that trade. And God says it is perfectly right and just for me to forgive you when you confess your sins to me i am the righteous holy god and my righteous holy judgment has been poured out upon my righteous holy son and now you can be provided this forgiveness this justice in this way he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness two things are going on when he uses these two different words to describe what happens when we confess our sins He forgives us and he cleanses us. Forgiveness is the idea of releasing something. Someone owes you money and you, instead of turning in the IOU and saying you've got to pay up today like a debt collector, it's not that. You just say, I write it off. I let it go. You don't owe me anything. Somebody offends you and hurts you and you'd like to retaliate and you let go of that. There's a sense of justice, like, oh, I deserve to do something to them. They, get, they, get, they should get what they deserve. They've hurt me. I want to hit them back. I want to hurt them. Somebody hurt them where it, hit them where it hurts. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let go of that. That's the idea of forgiveness there, of releasing them of the debt they owe you. Sin is like a debt that we owe God. We have broken his laws. We have failed him. We are spiritually bankrupt and we owe him everything, our very souls. And he's willing to release us of that obligation. That's forgiveness. But then he says he's willing to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, the word cleanse has this idea of washing of removing defilement and dirt, but it's interesting that this very word, it's a Greek word where we get our word cathartic or catharsis from, you know, someone says they, they were crying or they were upset and they said, oh, it was a very cleansing, cathartic event. It felt like I was emotionally, almost like I was healed by releasing those emotions. It was a very cleansing thing. It's interesting that Jesus uses the same word to describe, the gospel writers use the words about Jesus to describe what happened when he would heal a leper. Someone with a terrible skin disease. They were cleansed. Other people were healed. They were cleansed. You've been healed. And, and the English will translate it as healing, but it's the idea of cleansing. And I think what John is trying to say here is he writes to these Christians, these new Christians, he's saying, Your sin is not only a debt, but it's like a disease, and you need to be healed of it. That disease is so defiling, so contaminating. It's it's like a grotesque infection. I read this week about hundreds of children in in a town in Pakistan who've all come down with HIV. And they traced it back to one doctor who kept using the same needle to draw blood and give injections. And the virus was passed from one child to another child to another child to another child. And it wasn't their fault. It was the error, the carelessness, the callousness of this physician. And there's a point where we all, you know, we put on the rubber gloves. You ever visit somebody in the hospital that that has maybe MRSA or some very serious infection, and you've got to put the rubber gloves on, you put on the gown, you put on a mask, and you go in and visit? Sometimes they even make you wear eyewear, a face shield, because they don't want you to get poisoned by their infection. Our sin is like an infection. It's like a disease. And we desperately need to be cleansed of that. And that's what happens when you confess your sin. That's why we can't manage sin. It's like a disease that's out of control. You can't stop it, just as you can't stop a cold or will the cancer go away. You've got to take the medicine, take the treatment to attack the disease and get rid of it. When we confess our sins, you can count on God. He will do the right thing because he's right and good. He will forgive you and release you of that debt because of the sin, and he will cleanse you of all that defilement and disease. He does that for you and for me. And the reason he's doing all this It's not so that we can sin and go back and get forgiven and then go back and do the sin again. It's not because of that. I think a lot of us look at it that way. I'm sure glad for 1 John 1, 9, all I gotta do is confess my sin and I'm clean with God. Clean slate, let's go. Boom, I fall again. And it's almost presumptuous on our part. If I sin, if I give in, all I gotta do is confess my sin to God and he'll forgive me. Well, it's true. All you gotta do is confess your sin and he does forgive you. But that presumption, God judges that. Don't presume upon God in any way, okay? Rather, notice what he says in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you. Why? Why is he writing these things to you? What does he say there in verse 1? So that, what's it say? You You may not sin. I'm writing these things to you not so that you go out and sin and sin a whole bunch more because God keeps on being gracious and forgiving you your debt and cleansing you of your defilement. No, it's not that. I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. So that you won't keep on sinning. You see, the third reason why what God does when we confess our sins is he puts us in the process of being transformed. I'm writing this so that you won't sin this is my plan, my purpose for your life, that will deal with this sin problem once and for all, that there's a healing and corrective and restoration, not just erasing of a debt, not just removal of dirt, but an actual restoration and healing and transformation so that you may not sin. You might. You may still give in. In fact, the nature of human nature, my track record is I confess my sin, I stop denying I have a problem, I keep moving in the right direction, but I invariably fall on my face again. Even when I try hard not to, I still fail. And you see, he explains in verses 1 and 2 how this whole confession thing operates. Our part is to stop denying the sin. Stop trying to manage it. Stop trying to hide it. This is what God has done to make it possible. We've already seen a hint of it in verse 7 when it says that God sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. But notice what it says in verse 1. But if we, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Literally, righteous Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. He's the one who kept God's law perfectly. He's the embodiment of God's love. He's the one who did not deserve to die for our sins, and yet that's exactly what he did. He was righteous in God's sight, and God is willing to listen to his son, Jesus. He does. God the Father and God the Son have perfect harmony and perfect communication with one another. They are on the same page. There's no miscommunication whatsoever. And so, Jesus, as he stands in the presence of his Father, he is an advocate for us. The word literally is the idea of someone who is an intercessor, someone who comes in as an intermediary, an advocate. We use the analogy sometimes of a defense attorney, and it's that, but it's not just a defense attorney. It's it's like a defense attorney and prayer warrior wrapped up into into one. So that he's not only pleading our case before the Father, but he's also praying for us at the same time. And Jesus is doing that for us right now. He's praying for us and praying for all his children around the world at this time. He's praying for us. Father, help him listen. I know they're feeling sleepy and Pastor Scott's going long. but please help them listen. I know they're not understanding. Help the pastor make it clear. Help us grasp. Help us applaud. Bless them, Father. Do you understand that? That Jesus is praying for you and pleading for you right now, defending you before the Father when the devil accuses us or when we accuse ourselves, because often we don't need anybody to accuse us. We already feel condemned. I'm not worthy. I'm not going to go into God's presence. I'm not going to, why should I pray? God's not going to listen to me. I look, look how I've screwed up. Look how I've failed. Why would I go into God's, God's not going to listen to me. We don't need the devil to accuse us. We accuse ourselves. And yet in that moment, Jesus is pleading, draw him to you, Father. Draw him to you. He's so discouraged. He's so ashamed. Help him understand what I did for him to cleanse his shame. Help him see that I paid the debt. Help him to understand that I can wash away all that disease and heal him and restore him and make him whole. I can transform his life. Help him see that, Father, and claim it by faith. So there's Jesus interceding for us, pleading for us, advocating for us, defending us before the accusations that the devil throws at the father the accusations that we throw at the father of our unworthiness he's defending us there and he's praying for us right now but beyond all that notice what verse 2 says because it gets even richer it just simply says this he Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the propitiation for our sins all right This is your 50 cent theological word of the day, propitiation. Propitiation is simply a word that means a sacrifice that satisfies. A sacrifice that meets the conditions for the worshiper, the person offering the sacrifice to be forgiven and accepted and approved by God. It's a satisfying sacrifice. So Jesus is not only paying for our sins as he gave his life on the cross. And this goes back to the picture of the, uh, the day of atonement in the Old Testament and the, the Passover lamb and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament of an innocent lamb or a bull giving its life for the worshiper so that the worshiper would be forgiven and accepted by God. Jesus Christ as John the Baptist said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is that Lamb of God who gave His life on the cross to take away my sin and your sin. Our sin. He takes it away. And so He's the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice that makes us acceptable in the sight of God. And notice what He says. It's not just for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And I know theologians argue Back and forth, they've been doing this for about 500 years. Did Jesus die only for people who trust in him or did he die for everybody? And I just want to say, this verse says he died for everybody. But it only works for people who believe. It's only applied, it only is applicable, it only makes a difference in the people who choose to trust in him. So I get where people say he died only for the people who believe. But no, he died for everybody, but it works, it, app- it changes the life of people only the ones who believe they're the only ones that get the benefit of it you have to put your trust in christ and in this passage it only works for people who confess their sins the sacrifice of christ the cleansing power of christ's death the transforming power of what christ did to save us from our sins and make us holy in god's sight it only works when we confess our sin when we're honest with him about what we've done and how we failed and so i think the challenge for us today as we read this scripture and hear this today is what will you do will you confess your sins or will you just try to manage it will you try to hide it what will you do listen humans have been hiding their sin since the garden of eden you know operation fig leaf when adam and eve after they ate the the fruit of the the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil, they they took the leaves and they sewed them together and they made themselves aprons to try to cover up their their nakedness and their shame. And they hid in the tree. They climbed up in the tree in the Garden of Eden. They were in the tree when God came, came into the garden for their daily Bible study and fellowship time. And they didn't, they were just hiding. And maybe you're hiding your sin. Maybe you're not willing to admit it. Maybe you've said, God, please forgive me of my sin. But maybe you haven't even been willing to say that because you're just too embarrassed. You're too afraid. You're too ashamed. I just want you to know that Jesus is praying for you right now and he has paid the price for you right now through his life and death on the cross. He was exposed on the cross. He was ashamed on the cross. He was defiled on the cross. All the things that we are because of our sin, he experienced that for us so we could be forgiven by God. It's right and just for God to do this, to forgive us and cleanse us. And one day, a friend of mine and I were reading this verse together. He was so discouraged, he had failed terribly. He was so embarrassed and so guilty. And I just said to him, you know what this verse says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He burst into tears. He burst into tears. And he says, you mean there's forgiveness for my sins? Yes, there is because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin when we trust in Him. So if you're saying, I have failed too badly, why would God forgive me? This verse says, confess your sins and He will forgive you. He will erase the debt he will start healing the disease in your soul and begin changing you and transforming you and make you right in his sight and help you on that path so that we learn not to keep sinning but learn not to sin, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. It starts the process of holy transformation when I acknowledge my sin and I confess it to him, he begins to change me from the inside out so that I become a person that's holy in his sight. He's done all the hard part. My part is just to confess it. Maybe you've already confessed to God and you're still struggling. Well, James tells us we need to confess our sins to one another. And I'm not talking about like going to the, the church and confessing it to a priest and getting absolved somehow like that. But I am saying that maybe there's a brother or sister in Christ whom you trust who loves you that you can go to them and say, I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray for me? That God would help me? If you have any advice, I'm willing to be accountable to you. I'm willing to confess my sins to you. And we can help each other apply that forgiveness and cleansing that God offers to us. We can encourage each other that way and grow in holiness in God's sight. You can be forgiven forever when you confess your sins to Christ. Stop hiding the sin. It doesn't help. But confession always brings forgiveness and cleansing because of Christ. Would you pray with me, please? And then we'll receive the Lord's table. Thank you so much, Father in heaven, that we could be in your presence today. We can come to you and cry out to you and that we could admit to you our, our failure and our sin. And I thank you that you ask us to do this not to just humiliate us or embarrass us but rather to heal us and cleanse us. Lord, I thank you that you want us to be forgiven and have fellowship with you. I ask that you would help us to stop hiding our sin but instead help us to bring it out in the open and confess it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.